And Chief Bruni Sinney said that when Mrs. Smith is trapped inside her house, she expects us to show up and trade places with her. That's what makes us firemen is our ability to serve, our ability to put ourselves in situations to try to save a life. Enchanted Sky Media. Media. From the Federal Resources Studio, this is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast, hosted by award-winning journalist Scott Orr. Code 3 features interviews with leading members of the fire service, discussing firefighting strategy, tactics, and other topics you need to know more about. Now, here's Scott. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me for another edition of Code 3. This is the show for and about firefighters. We're informing and entertaining members of the fire service, just like you, from coast to coast. Firefighters love handy phrases almost as much as they love acronyms. Wait a second, scratch that. Firefighters' bosses love handy phrases almost as much as they love acronyms. The guy in the turnouts may not be so fond of those old maxims. They get repeated and then improved upon until they don't even mean the same thing anymore. But those phrases are still treated as gospel truth. Here today to discuss that problem is Clay McGee. Clay is a firefighter paramedic with Birmingham, Alabama Fire and Rescue, as well as Chelsea Fire and Rescue. A 13-year veteran firefighter, he's an instructor with Magic City Truck Academy. And Clay McGee joins me now. Welcome to Code 3. Hey, good to be here, Scott. Is this a problem with these phrases being too simplistic, or are they just misinterpreted over time? You know, Scott, I think they, uh, I think they just kind of been misinterpreted over time. I think all of them have their place. I think they all had good meaning behind them when they came out. But I think the big problem is, is that people don't, when they're taught, especially the young firemen, I don't think there's enough direction given on what they exactly mean, you know, how to implement them, stuff like that. And I think that's kind of where over time we've gone wrong is, you know, a lot of these phrases are being thrown around and uh, young impressionable firemen hear them from guys with time on the job. They just take them for, for what they, you know, face value, what they're told with no real background behind what they truly mean. So I feel like over time they've, they've gotten to where they justify them to, you know, not be aggressive firemen. All right, and we'll look at a few of them. Let's start with the big one. Chief Bernasini's classic, risk a lot to save a lot, risk a little to save a little, and risk nothing to save nothing. What's the problem in how this one's being applied these days? I think the big one, how it's being applied is there's no, everybody has a different definition of what, what a lot is. That's totally, I know that's a culture thing, especially the area that you work in, the department you work for. But I feel like overall, the culture of the fire service has kind of adopted that to mean that a lot is strictly just known life safety issues. And, you know, there's a story, I can't remember who told it to me, uh, but they were having dinner with Chief Brunicini several years ago. And even Chief Brunicini said that when Mrs. Smith is trapped inside her house, she expects us to show up and trade places with her. That's 
what makes us firemen is our ability to serve, our ability to put ourselves in situations to try to save a life. So uh, I think it's just how it's being applied. I, I think uh, people are just kind of using it, you know, taking it at face value, not really thinking about what it truly means. I think you may have a point there. I spoke to Chris Tobin on the show a while ago. Yeah. And he said, how do you know what means a lot to me? Maybe to me, my dog means a lot. But to you, it means nothing. Exactly. You know, that was actually a good episode. I listened to it not too long ago. Chris is a great guy. What should we be teaching people in terms of this phrase? Do How, how do we teach them what risking a lot means or should mean? I think that to start with, we have to know what our citizens' expectations of us is. And, you know, a lot of that came right after the uh, Parkland school shooting and all the backlash that you're seeing of the, the sheriff deputy, uh, you know, not entering the building. And then you're seeing these public expectations. This is a, a paid a professional that's trained. And he's expected to, like I said with Mrs. Smith, you're expected to go in and risk your life for these people. And so with this saying, I think what we need to teach people is, is that risk is part of our job. We take risk every day we go to work. Every time we roll out on the apparatus, we're taking a risk running lights and sirens to medical calls, you know, dumpster fires. And I know some places have kind of started toning down what they run lights and sirens to, but there's still a lot of places where they run lights and sirens to everything. You know, we need to to take care of ourselves. We don't need to be fat and out of shape. We don't need to uh, be drinking and all this stuff that, that we do to our bodies. All of us, we need to minimize risk, I guess is what I'm saying, before the call. When the tone goes off for a structure fire, whether it's confirmed entrapment or not, the time for us was up until that point. From that point to the incident is over, that belongs to the citizen. And like you said earlier, like Chris said, you know, different things to different people mean a lot. I expect people to show up to my house and save it. You know, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't have a death wish. I don't want anybody in the fire service to have a death wish, but a lot of fires can be put out that people don't go into. And there's a lot of savable property in a lot of places, especially in the urban environment. Those people don't have homeowner's insurance or renter's insurance. What they have is their possessions inside of that that uh, apartment or house. I think they expect us to show up and save it. For years, we've heard, if I get hurt, then I can't save anyone else. But you're not suggesting that we go in and get hurt. You're saying that a lot can be done that we're writing off in the name of risk. Exactly. The, I mean, like training, taking care of ourselves is a big thing. One of the examples I used a while back was uh, like in the part of the country where I live, we have a lot of split level homes. The garages are, you know, concrete block walls. Uh, they're framed out. They have the master like my house, the master bedrooms over the garage. There's no sheetrock or anything in the garage on the ceiling. So if uh, you had a garage fire, the subfloor and the, uh, the joist are immediately exposed to fire. I know people that would think that, that committing a search over an uncontrolled garage fire is too risky. But the way I view it is, you know, that's that's a, a targeted search area. A lot of victims are found, you know, in their bedrooms. I think that you need to get up there and you need to search it. But the way you minimize risk is training beforehand. You train for those situations. You need to make sure that your guys move fast and with a purpose if they aren't lollygagging around. You need to make sure that they sound the floor as they go before they even enter the door to the, the bedroom or through the window if they're going to be yes. That's how you reduce the risk before the situation. But like I said, when that when that tone goes off, that's the citizens' time. They bought that. They pay me to show up and do my job. I'll be back with more right after this.
Federal Resources is a mission-critical solutions provider with only one goal, to empower and prepare the first responder for any threat, at home or abroad, that they are called on to respond to. Your mission is to protect and defend. Our mission is to make sure you're equipped with the knowledge and training on response techniques to current threats. We'll make sure you know the latest innovations in technology to ensure mission success every time. You look out for everyone else. Let us look out for you. Learn more at federalresources.com. All right, then there's aggression and intelligence must both be present. One should not exist without the other. Which sounds reasonable. How is it being misapplied these days? It, it is a very reasonable thing. I think that aggression is a word that has kind of called a bad rap lately. So I think people try to throw the intelligence part in there to say that, you know, you can't be aggressive if you aren't smart about it. And I certainly agree with that. You need to be intelligent. You need to study things like building construction. You need to study the layouts of the houses in your area so that you know, you know, where the bedrooms are and the type of house you are. That if I open the front door and it swings against the wall to the left, that's probably the bedrooms to the left and the, you know, the great rooms to the right, stuff like that. Use all that intelligence that you have and combine it with your aggression to get the job done. But like I said earlier, you know, it's if my house is on fire. Like, I want an intelligent and aggressive fireman showing up. But if my house is on fire and my kids are trapped, I don't want a smart fireman that's timid. I want the guy that may not know the best of everything to do, but he's going to show up and get the job done. He's going to risk his life for my family. You know, no one wants to die or get hurt, but, you know, we have that oath that we swore to. One example I like to use is the term survivability profiling. You know, this is kind of like one of those intelligence things. You know, it came from an FDNY uh, officer several years ago. That, you know, we show up, we do our approach survivability profile and try to determine whether or not anybody can survive in there. Well, I don't think that's our job. We can survive more than the citizen can. So you need to do either a search profile or what we like to call a tenability profile. And, you know, sit there and be like, hey, there's this house is 85 percent involved. Instead of saying nobody can survive that, you show up and you use your smarts and your training and say, hey, there's 15 percent I can search real quick before we have to back out and go defensive. And at the time that I wrote this article, that actually uh, happened. I know a guy that, that made a grab. People were on the scene trying to get defensive. He forced the back door, did a door sweep, and found the victim lying uh, within 10 feet of the, the back door and made the grab. So you have to use your smarts to back up the aggression. Right, and we know that aggression is not necessarily a negative, as you just pointed out. Parents of a child who saved from burning house wouldn't be critical. But why is aggression getting a bad reputation lately? You know, I don't, I don't know. I think you have all these studies that came out in the last five, six, seven years. And I think the science is great. I think how you apply it is the problem. I think people have bought into some stuff, hook, line, and sinker. I think that departments, some people need to use the science 100%. A lot of the stuff, tactics and everything in the fire service are, are based on, you know, staffing and your equipment and response times and all that type of stuff. And I think that a lot of these urban, not a lot of them, but some urban departments have kind of got away from that. They've gotten to the intelligence side only, and they've lost their aggressiveness. And, I, you know, like you start hearing words thrown around like cowboy and death wish and all this stuff that goes along with being aggressive. And there, there's nothing wrong with aggressive. That's our job. You know, aggressive is, is uh, you know, like a, 
in the dictionary it says like offense or assault and that's what our job is when we show up we're to assault the building and uh get in there control the fire get our searches done put the fire out if we can and if not then we back off and, and go defensive all right finally there's this one life safety incident stabilization and property conservation I think the question here is whose life safety are we talking about, ours or theirs? Well, it definitely, it's definitely both. I mean, we have to watch out for our life safety, but we're also there for their life safety. And I think the big one here is how people misconstrue everything. A lot of people think of it as me, us, them, but I think it's, I think it's them, us, me. And once again, like we we're talking about earlier, you put yourself first by taking care of your training, taking care of your physical needs, everything before that tone goes off and being ready. This is kind of a big one in the fire service right now. And I see both sides of the debate with the life safety issues. Some very respectable. I was in a conference last week and a very, I'm not going to say his name, but a, a very famous chief from FDNY you know, asked who, who's the number one priority on the fire ground and kind of heard some mumbling and then he said us. And you can tell some people didn't like that answer. But the thing is, is he's smart enough to understand that we, in the sense of we take care of ourselves, we can't get hurt on the way there. We can't do anything stupid and get hurt on scene or we can't do our job. I think the backlash that's kind of started the, uh, the them, us, me movement is people hear that me, us, them, we're the number one priority. And they, they believe it hook, line, and sinker that I, I should not do anything that's going to get myself hurt or killed, ever. I want to minimize as many injuries and deaths a year in the fire service as they can. I think it's just gone so far down that path that you're starting to see the movement of them must me to remind people that we swore an oath to be here for these people. You know, Chief uh, Lombardo has a quote that I saw uh, probably a year or two ago on Facebook talking about the difference between wildland firemen and and structural firefighters. And this was in regards to uh, to property conservation. But he said, you know, you never hear anybody ask if a tree was worth a life, but you always hear people ask if a house was. I think that's 100% on point. Well, let me ask this then. Do you feel like there's been an overall movement toward what I will characterize broadly as wimpiness in the fire service lately? I feel like that's what a lot of people call it. You know, I, I feel like that it's uh, I still feel like there's a lot of great firemen out there. And I feel like there's a lot of great firemen that have lost their their path. I feel just all these sayings, all this stuff that says me first is kind of just created an attitude. I don't think people are wimps. I think they're they're capable of a job. I don't think they're scared because I know there's guys out there that used to do it that have changed from being aggressive to being, you know, timid. They've been there. They, they've proven that they can do the job. I think it's just the the whole culture has changed with the, the way that we're educating firemen these days to to truly believe that I'm first, you know? Yeah, but what I'm wondering is, isn't this more a case of the fire department bosses feeling this way rather than the line firefighter? I mean, people like you are willing to go into that building and save that kid. But the officer or the admin people may be the ones saying, hey, wait, don't go in there yet. Yeah, I understand where they're coming from to an extent. Admin, obviously, once you get up that high, you're, you know, you're worried about all sorts of stuff like loss of time and paying people overtime to work for the injured firemen and 
all that type of stuff. With the officers, you have that extra responsibility all of a sudden. Now you're in charge of people. It's not just you that you have to worry about. And I understand that. That's a whole other level of of being brave, I guess you could say. Like, But that all goes back to training. Train with your guys. Know your guys. Know what they're capable of. And the officers, unless you're a chief officer, you should be in that situation with your guys. I think that's one of the big things that, that's kind of another scary trend is places have fire officers that try to supervise on the fire ground instead of lead on the fire ground. You know, an all, a company officer's place is to be inside with his guys, keeping tabs on them, watching over them, and watching on conditions so that their guys can do work. All right, Clay McGee, thanks for joining me today on Code 3. Uh, thanks for having me, Scott. And we put more information about keeping the phrases we use honest at Code3Podcast.com slash Maxims. Check it out. Oh, here comes your trivia question. How did bagpipes become the traditional instrument played at firefighter funerals? I'll have the answer right after this. Now's your chance to get your hands on Code 3 t-shirts, sweatshirts, and more. Show your support for the podcast that supports firefighters from coast to coast. Just go to Code3Podcast.com and click on the Code 3 store link. Or go to Code3Podcast.com slash shop and tell the world that you're a Code 3 fan. And here's your trivia answer. The tradition of bagpipes being played at a fire department funeral in the U.S. goes back over 170 years. When the Irish and Scottish immigrated to this country, they brought the bagpipe with them. They played it at weddings, funerals, and dances. In 1840, the Great Potato Famine led to massive Irish immigration to the East Coast. And that's when the tradition of pipes being played at funerals really took off. Irish immigrants were unwelcome. The only jobs they could get were the ones no one else wanted. Dangerous, dirty jobs like firefighters and police officers. There were a lot more line-of-duty deaths back then, and of course a high number of them were Irish. The haunting sound became synonymous with firefighter funerals when families of those who were not Irish asked that bagpipes be played at their funerals. Nowadays, there are pipe and drum corps and fire departments around the country waiting for a call they hope will never come. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Love to hear what you think of the show. Just email me, scott at code3podcast.com. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. Code 3 is made possible through the generous support of Federal Resources. Visit them at federalresources.com. This show is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To contact us, get more information on today's show, or to subscribe to the podcast, go to code3podcast.com.